John, I think it's the microphone. <laughs> Blame everything on the sound system. I do. Good morning, church. Please open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Wow, what a great day. And every time I hear that said, i got to tell you, I think of a, a story. A fellow was uh, getting ready to go to work one day, and it was raining cats and dogs outside. And he um, went to get an umbrella out of the closet, and it was his wife's umbrella. And, and she saw it and said, you stop right there. All six of our umbrellas are at your office. Get a newspaper. So he got him a newspaper, kind of grumbling, ran outside, jumped on the bus to, to, to run to work. And as he boarded the bus, he sat down next to an Orthodox Jewish man, the kind with the black hat and the, and the curls and everything. And, and uh, they, they chatted a little bit. Uh, and as the, the, the fellow got to get off the bus, he absentmindedly reached down and grabbed the Jewish man's umbrella and got off with it. And before he knew what would happen, he was already gone and, and on his way. Well... After work was over that day, the fella gathered all of his umbrellas together. There was about eight of them, actually. Pulled them together, got back on the bus to go back home, and guess who he sat down next to? The Orthodox Jewish guy just turned to him and said, I can see thou hast had a good day. <laughs> it's been a good day. When people are living a life of worship, I believe with all of my heart, our combined times of worship are going to be get-tos, not have-tos. We're continuing in a series of lessons that I've entitled, Here I Am, the Worship. And today's lesson really is the second part of a lesson that I'm calling Celebrative Reverence. We're going to see an attitude today in the text in 2 Samuel 6. that I think clearly helps us see the type of attitude God hopes is in our hearts whenever we approach him to worship. It's an attitude that we find in a dead priest in the dirt and a dancing king kicking up some dirt. Both have something to teach us, I think, about the attitude God's looking for as he's searching for, John 4, 23 says, worshipers. Before we get to this, let's pray. God, it has been a great, great day. And it's because of you we have come to praise and to magnify and glorify you. Not just now, but for all that you've been doing in our lives, moment after moment, day after day this week. We hope, Father, that uh, this combined time of worship carries us over into a week of worship. But, Father, we realize we're not the only disciples meeting today. Please, we ask you to be a blessing and that you are welcomed and that you are honored and glorified also at First Baptist Church this morning. Father, we, uh, we want so very much to partner with every single disciple in this community who is doing their best to be Jesus and to honor you. Help us, Father, to focus on the things that we have in common rather than just the things that we don't. Please, we know that that unity will be a great day in heaven. Father, please continue to work through this broken, struggling, fearful, but full of wonder, 
servant who attempts to preach this lesson this morning. We truly do come before you with reverence, but celebrated reverence, because our hearts are full of joy, and we know you are the author of all joy. In your son's precious name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. I mentioned the dead priest and a dancing king. Well, the priest is Uzzah. The king is David. The common object involved in one person's death is also involved in another person's dancing, and it is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're just testing the waters of Christianity, you need to know something about us Judeo-Christians. Our heritage is in Judaism. When you think of a tree, we're the branches, and Judaism is the, the trunk and the roots of that tree. And so as we study what God did in this nation of people, of Jews, Israel, that's our, our ancestors. Those are our forefathers that we're talking about. And there was a significant piece, an artifact, have you, called the Ark of the Covenant that was as dear to a Jew as you could possibly imagine. I really don't think human words or even filmmaking at its best can portray the significance that this small rectangular box on the screen that we know as the Ark of the Covenant had in this nation's life. Anybody here seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, that comes pretty close, though, of showing the awesomeness of the Ark itself. But you and I are not used to seeing a visible, touchable, tangible God. Most of us think of God in spiritual, invisible terms. But in the Ark, you had the opportunity to experience God's visible power and presence. Inside this gold overlaid box commissioned by Moses was a trio of mementos of God's power. The first, the gold jar containing some unspoiled manna. The second was Aaron's walking stick that actually budded like a tree in the spring only long after it had been cut. The third is the priceless stone tablets that contained God's Ten Commandments, literally engraved by the very finger of Almighty God. Now, the, the box was very small in size, just three feet, nine inches tall, two feet, three inches wide. But while it may have been small in size, it was extremely powerful and significant in meaning to this nation called Israel. Because you see, in addition to God's symbol of power that was in it, there was the seat, you can see it right there, of God's presence right on the top of it. What you have there on top are these cherubim with their wings out, outstretched, and they covered this lid, looking over God's power and establishing God's presence on the earth. It is not only beautiful, it is powerful. Wherever this box was, was the holiest place on the globe. During the temple era, <laughs> this would be a little bit tense, the high priest on one day out of the year went to a place called the Holy of Holies where this ark was. And before he could go in, personal sacrifices had to be made, repentance had to be made to go into this place. And when they sent him in, tradition has it, that they tied a rope around his ankle so that when he went in, if something were to happen to him in there, since he was the only one who could be in there. And if he died or something, they could at least drag him out and save their lives. Holy, 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 this little box said. 
I don't think it's possible to overstate as much as maybe I've tried the significance of that golden box. Now, when we come to the book of 2 Samuel, we find out that that ark actually falls into the hands of some of Israel's enemies. They're called the Philistines. They think they're like stealing the team's mascot until they get it into the temple of their God. And they realize they don't have a mascot on their hands. They've got majesty, majestic holiness on their hands. And instead of a trophy, they come to find out they've got a trap. And people start dying and terrible things start breaking out amongst their people. And so they don't want this mascot in their trophy room anymore. They put it on a cart. And they get some new cattle and they send it away. Where interestingly enough, it does go away back into the, the borders of the nation of Israel. And it stays in a storage unit for 20 years. Seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what all was going on in the nation of Israel at that time. Didn't take the time this week to go back and look that up. But I think it's probably safe to say it was a mess. You have that incredibly beautiful, powerful presence of the Lord able to be in your midst and you leave it in a storage unit. Now, you talk about storage wars and that would be a find, huh? (laughs) Twenty years, though, down the road, When David becomes king, first priority is bring that back home. That's when we come to 2 Samuel 6. Over 30,000 people gather together to bring the ark back home. They gather at the house of Abinadab, the priest. He has two sons there that are put in charge of this transport of this holy, holy ark. Now, it's drawn by two oxen. It's put on a cart, a wagon, very much the same way it came to them. And they launch. Trumpet blasts. Timbrels, harps, lyres, sistrels, cymbals. David and all of Israel, the scripture says here, celebrate with all of their might before the Lord with everything they can get their hands on. And they're launching this incredible 30,000 plus parade until the Bible says they come to the threshing floor of Nacon and they hit a patch of bad road and the oxen stumble and the wagon shakes and the cart shifts a little bit and Uzzah does what any one of us would have done. That sacred chest is about to fall off the wagon and he takes the situation literally into his own hands and he reaches up to steady the ark. And as soon as he reaches up to steady the ark, the parade is over. Because Uzzah is down. Somebody walks over to him to see what in the world has taken place, and Uzzah's not breathing. They check his pulse, and it's clear Uzzah is dead. Now, you talk about raining on a parade. That did. And everybody goes home. Scared to death. Distressed what in the world to do next. David actually says out loud, how can the ark come to me? Pause button on the story. I think David is asking a question that every single one of us who cares anything about being in the presence of God has asked. 
How in the world can God's presence be a part of my life? Will he? How can he reside in my home? Will he? Can he reside in our church? Now, I'm getting to know this church well, but I think I know you well enough to know we want his healing touch here. We want his healing presence here. We want his leadership here. Amen? That's what we desire. That's what we're after. And our goal in this series is to say to God, all right, we walked into 2013 worshipers. When that's done, we want to be better worshipers. If it's true, John 4, 23 says you're seeking for worshipers, look no further than KCC. Because we so want to be the kind of worshipers you're after. Now my question is, is does it require the right statues? Does it require an orchestra? Is it the right amount of money? Or the right clothing? Please, don't drift off into Never Neverland because a dead priest and a dancing king have a lot to teach us this morning about becoming the kind of worshipers that worship God, listen to me, His way. Because the first thing we learn in this short little context we've covered so far is this. If we want God's presence to be with us, we must come to Him, listen to me, on His terms only. If you're a little put out with God that he would strike somebody down who was just trying to help, please realize this is no accident. This is insolence. God had given very specific instructions as to who and to how this ark was to be transported, and they were ignored. Number one, only priests could transport this ark. Then only after they had offered sacrifices for themselves and their families, and there's no mention of such sacrifices in this context. Number two, it's this second instruction for Uzzah that he ignored that led to his death directly. The ark was not to be lifted with hands, but with Achaia poles. Priests ran long poles. You saw it a few moments ago in the diagram there in the picture. He ran those poles right through those rings to the corners of the ark, and the Bible says the Kohathites must not touch the sacred objects, or they will die. They are required to carry sacred objects of the tabernacle on their shoulders, the Bible says. So the Bible's trying to say, Uzzah knew better. He was a priest. He was a Kohathite priest, a direct descendant from Aaron himself. And so the ark had been kept, now this is what's even wilder, in his garage for 20 years. He should have known better. But I kind of understand. After 20 years of being around the ark in your garage, do you think that maybe, just maybe, the holy might become a little humdrum? The sacred might become just a little bit second rate? And I can see that. I can see how Uzzah would have decided that commands might take a back seat to some convenience. A wagon will do. I mean, poles, Really? Come on, um, a cart really is a lot stronger than the backs of some Bible-thumping priests, right? Now, we got these oxen to pull it, right? Wrong. The Bible says God was outraged. Outraged. A friend of mine sought out the opinion of an Orthodox Jewish rabbi by the name of Joe Shalom. Joe actually grew up in Jerusalem. He studied at an Orthodox Jewish rabbinical seminary. He still actually lives in Israel, and he conducts some of those Holy Land tours that maybe some of you here have gone on. 
He not only deeply understands but loves the Old Testament. And he was asked on a tour during the Holy Lands when they came by the site where supposedly Uzzah died. Why did he have to die? And here was Joe's response. The question is not why did Uzzah have to die. The question is, is why does God let any of us live? Well, judging from the number of dead churches and cold hearts, I'm not sure that he does. I loved hanging around Scott Stork for a couple of days, really a couple of hours in a couple of days. But when I had him alone for just a little bit, I said, what is the hardest part about coming back from China to the States, from the mission field there to here? And he said two things. Number one, the excess of stuff here. And he said, number two, the numbness to the sacred. He said, Americans can attend church as often as they want. They can take communion anytime they desire. They have the privilege to openly associate with those who claim to be followers of Jesus. All of that is a given, and yet the sense of the sacred is so rare. The appreciation of God is so limited when access to Him is so unlimited. That bothers my heart, church. Even more importantly, it bothers God's heart. How can that be? Well, I can tell you how it can be. When the holy is allowed to become humdrum, when the sacred is allowed to become second rate, note to self, that can be deadly. It was for Uzzah and it can be for any church anywhere. You see, I believe a dead church is a dead church because they have built it on their terms, not God's. You get a dead church when he exists for your convenience, not his. When you're to be thought about, not him. Uzzah reminds us loudly. Bad move. We come to God on his terms only. Or it's deadly. So I have to ask you. Do you know what those terms are? Do you know what those terms are? I'm not talking about what you've read in some book somewhere or what you've heard from some preacher like me. Wow. If the presence of God is to be taken that seriously and you say you want some of that, do you know what those terms are? I want to encourage you as strongly as I can encourage you about anything for the moment. Please, you need to know what those terms are. And I want to invite you to get started in the early church's worship book itself, the book of Psalms. Start there. Don't read the entire Bible this week, but start there and get an idea what in the world he's looking for from us as worshipers. It was the early church's hymn book. I think it's probably a good place to start. We're actually going to go a little bit further than that next week, but not now. You need to know his terms if it could be this deadly. Now, enough about a dead priest. Let's talk about the dancing king. When David witnesses Uzzah's death, God is not the only one who's furious. The Bible records David's angry. He's angry because the Lord's wrath has broken out on Uzzah. And so what does he do? He places the ark in the nearest storage unit he can get it to, at Obed-Edom's place. And he goes to figure out what in the world did we do wrong to try and right that. 
Now, when he finally gets that figured out, he comes and says, what in the world is going on at Obed-Hedom's house since we placed the ark there? And I love this. Everything's going great. Listen to the word. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God at the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. <laughs> now, I love this about David. Uh, how's it going at Obed-Edom's place where the ark is? Well, the stocks are up. Crops have never been better. And I think every one of his teenagers, their acne has totally gone away gone all right consulted the law know how this is supposed to be done on god's terms let's go get it and when he does it's with rejoicing when those who were carrying the ark of the lord had taken six steps david stopped and sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf and wearing a linen ephah, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, don't just hear that. Think about it for a moment. A man's just died trying to transport this puppy, all right? And we're going to go back and we're going to do a redo here. We've consulted the law. we figured out how it's supposed to be done. It's supposed to be done with, with, with the right priests and the right poles. And so can you imagine what it was like if you're one of those priests and you're getting under that puppy for the first time? You think you're a little tense. I know we've read the rule book, but, but all right, like, here we go, guys. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. We all still here? All right, let's take a couple of steps. Let's see how this goes. One, two, three. Habib, you still with us? All right, three more. One, two, three, four. Five, six. Put it down. Put it down. Let's celebrate. It says it right there in the word. Six steps. And we're going to stop and have a sacrifice and celebrate. Have a party. We made it six steps. Now you would too if your shoulder was underneath that pole. Because this matters. It matters. David's sacrifice. And the people praise. And the scripture records that David dances with all of his might. Now, I'm talking to the Church of Christ folks here. I'm assuming not many of you have even ever danced, let alone dance with all your might. No, I know better. That's kind of changing a little bit, all right? And that's good. With all his might. Anybody here seen the movie Hitch? Great movie, funny, funny movie. In the movie, Hitch is a matchmaker, all right, professional matchmaker. He's paid to do this. And he meets this guy by the name of Albert Brenham, played by uh, Kevin James. I don't know if you know Kevin James. He's just funny, big old tank of a guy. But they're going over just before uh, Albert Brenneman's going to have his big date with a girl that he just can't believe he's got a date with. And what Hitch is doing is checking to see what his dance moves are. He says, I don't like to leave anything uh, to chance. And Hitch says, show me some of your moves. And Albert says, oh, I got this part. And he says, okay, what I'm going to start with is the fire. And then we're going to pizza, pizza, pizza. And then we're going to, somebody help me here. We're going to Q-tip. That's right. We're going to Q-tip, baby. And we're going to Q-tip over here. And then we're going to throw the Q-tip away. 
and then we're going to do some more, baby. And Hitch says, stop it. That ain't going to happen. Right here. You live right here, Albert. Do you get me? Right here. No, that isn't David's dancing. It is all over the place. Gyrations, jumping, twists, and turns. He's nuts. And God loves it. As a matter of fact, he's so nuts so that when his kingly attire gets a little bit binding, he strips down to his kingly undies. Now, some commentators say, well, you know, it's not really like it was boxer shorts. It was more like this um, old nightshirt, not holy skivvy so much as kind of this prayer linen ephod that looked like a, a T-shirt. Well, whatever it was, I'm going to read you David's wife's comment on what she saw when David is, is doing the Albert Brenham, pizza, and he's doing this, and he's just going nutso. And here's what she says. Going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. <laughs> wow. I tried to imagine this week Congress and Obama actually getting on the same page and getting a law passed of any kind, and Obama out in his Fruit of the Looms on Washington Boulevard doing the Albert Brenham, <laughs> and we're thinking how crazy that would look. That's what you've got to have in your heart when you come to this text. David is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Now, if you're reading scriptures for the first time, you've got to be thinking, any minute, David is toast here. I mean, we've seen what God does to an irreverent, cocky priest, and here's David in the full presence of God and his watching children busting a move. I mean, dancing a jig in his underwear. Can you see the priest and the rest of the parade going, David, we don't want to lose you too. Tone it down. And they're waiting for the holy fire. And they're waiting for the pile of ashes, but nothing happens. The heavens are silent. And David just keeps spinning. David just keeps gyrating in the presence of the Holy One. Why isn't God angry? I think I know. For the same reason I wasn't. I came home from speaking at Pepperdine one year, and Gail and the girls were waiting for me there at the airport. Now, this is pre-9-11. Remember back in the day when they could actually come right up to the gate and see you come off the plane? But when I walked off the plane, there were my girls dancing a big jig. Daddy's here! Daddy's here! Now, they were fully clothed, all right? But it was still a scene. And if you know my wife at all, she's not into scenes. She's very private. But she was allowing this huge flamboyant display for all the world to see. And then my wife publicly kissed me. I'm not talking peck. Kissed me. In front of God and everybody. Now do you think for a moment I wanted to stop any of that? Neither does God. Neither does God. He loves to see his children dance. Loves it. Not tolerated. Loves it. Scripture never records David dancing at any other time. He didn't dance over Goliath. He never boot scooted over the Philistines. 
He didn't bust a move at his own inauguration as king. But when God came to town, David couldn't sit still. And I have to think, maybe God wonders, how could we? Really? Don't we enjoy everything that David was after? The promised presence of God himself? Here's what the Word of God says, Matthew 28 and verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. Matthew 18 and verse 20. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there, finish a church, I am with them. Wow! He's with us. And yet how long has it been since you were excited enough that in the moment you offered him a PDA? Now this text says anything about worship, I think it has to say God demands worship on his terms. Yes, but God delights in PDAs. Now you know what that is, don't you? What's a PDA? Public display of affection. And that's what my girls were saying when mama kissed me. PDA! PDA. Which is a pretty good definition of worship, I think. The Greek word most often used in the New Testament for the word worship is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss towards, to show outward respect and reverence towards, maybe sometimes by bowing, to do anything to show someone that you adore them. Now, put all that together in one simple sentence, and here's what I get for worship. Worship is the outward expression of an inward adoration. Would you read those words with me? Worship is the outward expression of an inward adoration. One more time. Worship is the outward expression of an inward adoration. PDA for short. Public display of adoration. That's what God hopes happens when His kids come into His presence. A PDA, a public display of the fact that I adore you, Father. I love you. I am amazed by you. And he loves this stuff. In two weeks, we're going to review through Scripture what those actually are so that you can be aware of what he loves. Not today. Because what's so important today is not so much what they are, but why we would offer them. Two reasons. Number one, God deserves them. And number two, he delights in them. That probably ought to be enough. Not a lot of explanation needed. Do you agree that God deserves every PDA we could ever offer him? Amen. You need to be reminded probably, like I do, that he delights in them. The Rocky Mountains may steal our breath away. Newborn babies may fill us with wonder. Sunsets may stun true soulmates that, that hang on to their marriage covenant for life make us marvel. But church, I believe, take them all away. Erase the mountains and the newborns and the stars and the sunsets and the tender hearts and just leave me in the Sahara. That would still be a place I could dance because of who He is. And He so wants us to know who He is, not just what He can do for us, but who he is. And I think that's why David would just fill up a book with just song after song, praise song after song after praise song after song because he's just everything to me. 
And that was the early church's hymn book. And it's our foundation in knowing how to come before him together in worship. He loves you so much, church, he would never leave you alone. He loves you too much to ever leave you alone. So he hasn't. He hasn't left you alone in your fears. He hasn't left you alone with your worries or your disease or your death. So kick up your heels for joy. That's reason enough to celebrate. He's never left you. Uzzah missed this. Uzzah had a view of a small God that could fit in a little bitty box. And he thought, this guy needs some help even with balance. So Uzzah doesn't prepare for him. He doesn't purify himself to encounter the holy. No sacrifices are offered. No commandments are observed. Forget repentance. Forget obedience. Just load God on the back of a wagon and send him down the road. Translation. 3,000 years later. Live like hell for six days and show up on Sunday for a little grace. Who cares what you believe? Man, slip a cross around your neck, put a fish on your bumper for good luck, light a few candles, say a few prayers to get God on your side, and let's see. Do you know what that is? Magic. That's not majesty. That's magic. And he deserves so much more than us just hoping to get a little God in our day. Now, let me go a step further. If your life isn't all full, then most likely it is going to be dreadful. God refuses to be conjured up and called down and commanded. He is a personal God who loves and heals and helps and intervenes for those who want Him, not just His stuff. Hungry hearts, reverent hearts, obedient hearts always get his attention. And he will come. Cover to cover, that's what the book says. And when he comes, it's time to dance. David shows us that a reverent heart and dancing feet can belong to the same person. Please hear that again. Home stretch. A dancing heart. Dancing feet and a reverent heart can belong to the same person. David had both. Now, I realize that makes some of us in this room very uncomfortable. It did in David's day. As a matter of fact, David brought the, back, brought the ark back home. And it wasn't God who breaks out on him in anger. Guess who it was? His wife. His wife. The Bible says, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Wow. Honey, hush. Now, at least she waited till he got home, all right? And then she lets him have it. Wives, have you ever done that to your husband? Kind of a little bit nervous about saying it now, aren't you? This really isn't a text, though, that scolds any wives out there about um, bringing up an embarrassing 
or, a, or an insensitive action of a husband. But make no mistake about it. She brings up something that every wife and every husband needs to take note of. He walks through the door and says, guess what? We brought the ark home today. Yes, I saw. And so did every other little maiden in town. I don't know what was more of a spectacle, the gold box or the golden king. But every little slave girl in town has seen the king today, all of him. How in the world am I going to face any of the ladies down at Bunko now? Thank you very much. David, it was vulgar. Just vulgar. Michael's not concerned about the ark. She's not concerned about her husband's safety. The one thing that she's concerned about is what others will think of her and what's hers. And she lets David have it. David said to Michael, verse 21, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than what you've seen today. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Listen to how this ends. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. Wow. That's a lot of drama for 23 verses. And this may be the first time that you've ever heard this story, but I can promise you it's not for me. Not for any of us who have been raised in churches of Christ. I cut my teeth on teachers and preachers who, when they came to this section of Scripture, thought that Uzzah was the focus of this text. Now, rightfully so, they pointed out that when it comes to coming into the presence of God, I need to remember to come on his terms. He demands that. But they wrongly pointed out who the star is in this story. It's God. Now, the next big player, it's not Uzzah. The next big player is the dancer. Not the dead priest. It's the dancer. The one who is just all hold barred, PDAing like no person has maybe ever or since. I don't know. Whenever God speaks about how to handle him or any of his commands, I've got one word for you, church. Obey him. But need, <laughs> you need to know this, and I am so learning this, that while God gives me some commands and demands that I need to obey, he also lets me know what he delights in. And when he does, here's what I'm going to do. Dance. Dance. God will take care of the despising onlookers and their judgments. You concern yourself with God and what he thinks and leave the criticism to him. It's best to give your focus and attention to worshiping David's God, not those who are watching you worship David's God. One story and we're done. Back in 1988, Oral Hershiser was pitching for the Dodgers. 
It's the final game of their World Series, and the camera panned over to Oral Hershiser when the Dodgers were at bat. To... It was funny to watch how Oral was handling the pressure. He had his hands over his chest, and he was just rocking back and forth. And his mouth was moving. After the game was over, Bob Costas asked him what he was doing in the dugout between innings. He said, I was singing to myself to calm my nerves. Well, the next night after the victory, Oral Hershiser's on Johnny Carson. Now, anybody under 20 need to ask your parents about what Johnny Carson is, okay? <laughs> Johnny asked him, what were you humming? And he said, I wasn't humming, I was singing. Carson said, well, then you need to sing us a few lines of what you were singing. Hershiser said, oh, no way, not on national television. And the crowd kind of got into it, and Johnny got into it and said, no, you've got to sing, you've got to sing. And so he cleared his throat, and here's what he sang. Praise God for whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you heavenly host. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. When it was finished, the crowd broke into applause for a very, very long time. Now, if that speaks to your heart at all, then you know why it speaks to God. And I know some of you are thinking, both David and Oral, those are just two people that are worshiping on their own. They aren't worshiping in an assembly like this. How can it speak to what we're doing here? Only this. What you do in private worship, sister, will dictate what we do together in corporate worship. Because we don't come to church to worship. We bring our worship to church. Father in heaven, please help us be a people for whom that's true. That we bring our worship to church. So that truly, someone might walk in that day who really didn't feel much like coming, but wants to honor you and what you've done in their lives that week. And when they walk in this place, it's just contagious. PDAs are everywhere. People's hearts are full of joy. The songs that we sing lift the rafters. The prayers that are prayed are heartfelt and you-centered. The supper that we're a part of, Father, celebrates you giving the greatest gift ever given to mankind. And the preaching, oh God, the preaching would just continue to point people to you so that all they ever saw was not some man in a pulpit, but you. Please let that be true among us, God. Let us be a church full of public displays of adoration. And I ask us humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song, Here I Am to Worship. It's kind of our theme song for this. And I just want to say this morning, if, if you want in on what's taking place, please, please come. We'd love to hear your confession to see you start in Jesus Christ as we saw these four earlier. But if you know this morning, you've been worshiping smaller deities and you want to redirect that worship to God because He and He alone deserves your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please find me or one of our elders at the back and let us lift you up in prayer. But church, let's stand and let's worship. Come on.